Right, we are in the letter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. 1 Corinthians, chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible's typically divided up into two Testaments, Old and New. Um, Old Testament is prior to Christ, New Testament is with Christ's coming. We're in the New, and uh, we're in one of the two letters to a church in Corinth. First and Second Corinthians. My purpose in choosing to preach through this book uh, is to hit on the doctrine of the church. This is a lot about who the church is, what the church is to be. So I want, hopefully, as we go through these verses, for you to grow in your understanding of of the biblical teaching on church. Second, as I am completely convinced that one of the reasons the church is having very little impact as it once did on society uh, is because we have lost our willingness to deal with issues of sin, typically called church discipline. And Paul in 1 Corinthians gets into that quite a bit. That's a scary word. Uh, Maybe has connotations for you that aren't helpful. And so I want to teach on that today. Uh, But... um, We're going to talk about church discipline uh, out of this text. Let me read this text. We'll pray, and then we'll get into uh, explaining these few verses. I'm just going to read verses 6 to 8 this morning. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Let's pray. Righteous Father, your word is a light to our feet to keep us from stumbling. It gives us life. Please teach it to us. May we never forget your law nor stray from your precepts. Please now make them the joy of our hearts, such that our hearts are inclined to perform your statutes until the end. In Christ's name, amen. Paul, right away in verse 6, picks up where he left out before. Your boasting is not good. If you remember, they are boasting arrogantly about their tolerance of sin within the church. And even gross sin of a man sleeping with his father's wife, incest. They're boasting about how they're so tolerant of it. Um, And Paul says that boasting uh, about a vice as if it's a virtue is obnoxious. It's serious. Boasting in of itself for wrong reasons is bad, but boasting about something that in and of itself is evil is all the worse. And uh, he wants them instead to deal with the sin in their midst. Now, he gets into some... uh, Old Testament concepts here dealing with the Passover. If you remember the biblical story, God created the world. He created two humans and put them in there, Adam and Eve. They sinned. God removed them from his presence, from the garden, and (coughs) promised, though, that he would provide redemption, that he would provide a way back into his eternal presence. God is holy. We sung of it. We're fallen in sin. By nature, and so we're removed from God's presence. And God promised to Adam and Eve, then to Abraham and so forth, to provide a Savior, 
And God did it by raising up a nation, Israel, from which he would bring his son. Israel, uh, at the end of Genesis, finds itself in slavery in Egypt. And God comes through many mighty signs and miracles and delivers them from that slavery and uh, brings them uh, into a promised land. Now, the way he brought them out, the last great thing he did was uh, he, prov- he, he killed all of the firstborn in Egypt. But God provided a way for his people to be saved from judgment. You remember that? Called the Passover. And there God said, you need to slaughter an unblemished lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of your home and then remove all leaven, remove all yeast and celebrate this feast that they call the Passover with unleavened bread. And uh, that was pointing forward to Christ. We know that the blood of an animal cannot take away our sin, as it says in Hebrews. Uh, But Christ, the perfect spotless Lamb of God, came and shed His blood in order that those who come to Him by faith might be forgiven and never face His judgment. Paul's picking up on that language here. Paul's picking up on this Passover language. That is, we no longer celebrate the Passover. We don't annually remember the exodus from Egypt by slaughtering a lamb, putting blood on our doorposts, and having a feast with unleavened bread. Why don't we do that anymore? Because Christ has been sacrificed. But we do have a feast, don't we? It's called the Lord's Supper. Right? But we don't slaughter animals anymore. Now we remember His body and blood broken for us. So Paul takes this Passover feast and uses it as an analogy for how we should deal with sin. And that's what we're going to get into here. Instead of letting leaven remain of sin, we should remove it. And we should remove it because we now get to celebrate a feast of forgiveness of sins. We'll get into that in a bit in a more. So there is this analogy. Leaven, if you put a little bit of yeast in a whole batch of dough, it invades the whole. And so we're in danger. So we should cleanse us of sin. And the analogy that Christ is the sacrificial lamb who has been sacrificed. And he doesn't have to do this annually. This is, a, this is where Roman Catholicism goes astray. They think in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Christ is being sacrificed all over again. He is not. He was sacrificed once for all. And we celebrate this feast now in holy living. That's where Paul wants to go to. Now, Paul begins by telling them that their boasting is not good. So I want to talk a little bit about boasting, about talking junk, as the kids say. Do the kids say that anymore? That was kind of in the 80s, Michael Jordan and so on. If you don't know who Michael Jordan is, there's something wrong with you. Um, So he's talking about boasting here. And in the book of Corinthians, this is a significant theme. In fact, Paul goes through four, (coughs) four ways that boasting can be sinful and gives us two ways that boasting can be godly. There is a a godly way to boast, but there are four sinful ways. If you turn back to chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, the Corinthians, it seems, were boasting that there was something great about them that caused God to save them. So Paul has to say the opposite. Consider yourselves. Not many of you are wise. Not many are powerful, not many are of noble birth, but God chose the foolish to shame 
the wise. God chose what was weak to shame the strong. God chose what was low to despise the world. Things that were not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in his presence. So there is a kind of boasting where we might, as believers, think that there's something great about us that, cho- that motivated God to choose us. And this would be kind of subtle with us. We in our kind of church might look down on other churches. Look how, look, look at there's something about us that God, that's causing God to bless us. We might even continually look down on unbelievers uh, because they're just something about them that God hasn't done what he did for us in them. So boasting about anything about why God chose you in of yourself is evil. In fact, Paul says in verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. A second way we might uh, boast wrongly is found in chapter 3, verse 21. So no, let no one boast in men. If you can remember back a few months, Paul in the first four chapters continually hits on the issue of Christians who set up great Christian leaders as sort of idols. They were boasting about how they were aligning themselves with Paul or how they were aligning themselves with Apollos or how they were aligning themselves with Peter or even they were aligning themselves with Christ in a way of making Christ equal with Paul and Peter and Apollos. And so Paul says you should never consider another human as if they're anything like God, as if by aligning yourself with them, you're putting yourself greater in God's favor, as if a man can do anything for you who isn't Christ. So there is this idolatrous ability for you and I as Christian believers to align ourselves with other people in a way that is crazy unhelpful. Young people, you might do that with your parents. You might think that there's something so good about them that you're going to get into God's favor more because of how great your mommy or daddy is. You have to come to faith yourself. You have to mature in faith yourself. You have to grow in godliness yourself. You have to become a Christian that loves God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength yourself. You might look at another person in our church like that. You might even look at a great Christian personality in the world and think that because you repost their posts, or because everybody knows that you're aligned with him or her, that there's something extra special about you. That's wrong. Now, you should know that your Christian leaders are sinners just like you are. John Calvin writes that it's, it pleased God not to give you pastors and elders who are angels so that you're consistently disappointed by us and turn to Christ. And you will be disappointed by men and women in the church consistently. And if that surprises you, there is not something wrong with them. Nobody is anything but a sinner in here saved by grace. Christ is everything. That's why we sing that song. Jesus is everything. If you turn to chapter 4, verse 7, we see another way that boasting can go wrong. In 4.7, they're again boasting in their own goodnesses and strengths and virtues and success. So they become very arrogant in themselves. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? These are people who are supremely talented. Paul begins in the letter to Corinth 
praising God for all of the grace God has given them. He says, uh, they are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. They are not lacking in any gift. But the Corinthians uh, have uh, attempted to break their arms, patting themselves on their own backs. They have gotten very arrogant. They think that their giftedness is something latent inside of them. And Paul says, why do you boast as if you yourself have discovered it? Don't you know that everything you have has been given to you? Why do you boast then as if you haven't received it? You understand? You probably have some skill or ability or talent that is really good. And you've put it to good work. Maybe you've built a business or maybe within a business you've done it. You have a skill, you have a talent, and there will be a temptation for you to think that you're something because of that skill or ability. Your skill or ability becomes your God, and if people are noticing your good skill, ability, and praising it, you're having a good day, and if people aren't noticing your good skill and ability, you're having a very bad day, because your worth is based on people recognizing how good you are. Paul says, everything that you have has been given as a gift to you. This is the doctrine of spiritual gifts in the church. Whatever you have is simply a gift from God's Spirit in Christ. Boast in Him. Now, in our church, this could be something that you boast about in your schooling choice. Homeschoolers might think that there's something. Those going to the Christian school might think there's something. Those who are going to the public school might think that they're doing the right thing. And you become so prideful and arrogant in your schooling choice. Or maybe in your Bible knowledge, you can name all of the kings of Israel in order. There was a person in my previous church like that, and they thought this person the most spiritually immature, and this person was the, the most spiritually immature. This person could name everything in order in the Bible. And I would not allow that person to teach anybody. They're so arrogant in, in their knowledge. You've got to be careful. Whatever you have is a gift. And then we have what's going on in our text, that they're boasting in something that the Bible calls evil, that they claim it a virtue. In my devotions this morning, I was reading in Isaiah chapters 5 through 7 or something like that. And God is indicting Israel because they're calling good that which is evil and that which is evil good. That's what the church is doing, this church is doing. You you know that we could do this, right? You know that we're no better than the Corinthian church. We could actually end up calling evil good and good evil. That's that's what our world is doing. That's what our world wants us to do. And we're not above that. But the only thing we're supposed to boast in is the Lord. We saw that in 131. So those are the four sinful ways to boast. There's two godly ways to boast. And the general one is... Chapter 1, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is, we want to do our singing the praises of God to God, because he is worthy. Uh, I appreciated Terry's prayer of how much he focused on how great the Lord is. He was boasting in the Lord. That's the kind of church we want to be, where we recognize whatever we have is a gift of God. 
And that when we begin to think great of ourselves, all we need to do is look at God for a moment and see how insignificant we saw, small we are in comparison with our holy, sovereign Lord. But there is other boasting in Corinthians. In chapter 1, Paul praises God for the good gifts of the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, Paul boasts in the repentance and growth of other Christians. There is a way where we can boast in the Lord being thankful for the God, growth and godliness that we see in other people's lives. That is something good to boast about. That God's grace is being evident in the lives of others. Now Paul even boasts in the Corinthians about these things. This church that he has more criticism of than any other church. He still sees godly growth in their life and, and praises God while encouraging them for it. And so those are, that's Christian boasting. Now in this text, we also get some really good teaching on the nature of sin. So I want to focus there for a moment. If you uh, look through these three verses, we see some very good biblical teaching on the nature of sin. The reason that it's important for us to get square what sin is, because you'll never love the gospel or Christ without knowing how depraved you and I are. You have to know how great God is. You have to know how bad you are in order to see how supreme Jesus is. And in this text, we have some very good uh, teaching on the nature of sin. Paul says that they need to cleanse out the old leaven. That term old is important. In the Bible, that term old is often... Uh, in relation to our sinful flesh from birth. Paul writes in Romans 6 that we are to put to death the old man. You've heard that before, right? Your old nature. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, all of us were in him. He is our representative. He is our federal head. Whatever he did, we did in him. When he sinned, you and I all sinned. And then, every human being born after Adam's sin is born with a corrupt, fallen, godless, dead spirit in enmity with God. That, that's the old. That's what we're supposed to be cleansed from. So that's the first thing to know about sin. That's all of us. Paul writes in Romans 3, all have sinned. There is no one good, not one. No one he seeks for God. This is something our world hates. This is in total opposition to liberal ideology. The depravity, fallenness of man. But it makes sense of the world. You and I are capable of great moral evil. You are. You are capable of moral great evil because of your fallen old nature. You as a man are capable of sexually abusing people in your own home. You know you are. 
We are capable of unthinkable evil because of this. You know the thoughts as a woman that go through your mind, right? Where does that come from? It comes from who we are by nature, apart from Christ and our old nature. Second, in verse 7, Paul says that we need to cleanse out. We need to be cleansed. That means that sin is unclean. Sin is unclean. It's unholy. It's gross. This is something you and I have to get straight about sin. Even the littlest of sin is really disgusting. And you know it. There's a reason that you do almost all of your sinning privately. In your own head, behind closed doors. There's a reason that you don't treat your family in public like you do in private. Because it's gross how you treat them in private sometimes, right? There's a reason why you do almost all your sinning in private because you know it's disgusting. It's shameful. It's embarrassing. It's unclean. Third, sin is a cancer. It grows. It is never content to remain the same size that it currently is. Paul writes, do you not know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Again, this analogy of yeast and leavening bread. You can't just keep the yeast in a little portion of the bread. It always invades the whole. I I don't make bread. I'm assuming this is true. It's true of sin. I know that. It's true of sin in your individual life. It's true in sin in your family unit. It's true in sin in your workplace. It's true in sin in the church. It's true of sin in our world. Why has, why has God given us such a thing as government? What is the state, the civil magistrate for? What is their only God-given biblical function on this earth? Romans 13. They are given a sword to punish and restrain evil. Why? Because if it goes unchecked, it will grow and grow and consume a society. Why does God say to fathers to raise your children in the discipline of the Lord? What is your role as a father? It is to spank for sin. Why? Because it will grow. Because it will consume a child. And I was talking at dinner, we had a couple over, and we were taught, he was thanking us, our children were well behaved. I don't know, we probably put, gave them some Zantax before they came over or something. But, right? And, and I, it made me think of gardening. What do you have to do to have weeds grow in your garden? Nothing. What do you have to do for sin to grow in your children? Nothing. And when when they're five, it's cute. And when they're 15, it's disgusting. Because it's consumed them, right? And it's affecting others. Sin will always grow. It's potent. It's a cancer. It's a contagion. 
It spreads. You and I are probably more intentionally concerned about avoiding the flu that's coming up this season or about eating the right kinds of foods than we are about dealing with our own sin. That's just true. And you're going to get the flu. It's okay to eat donuts. It is not okay to permit sin in your life. I would encourage you to be as intentional about dealing with your own sin as you are about what you're eating, even more so. Now, what do you do with sin? That's what this text is about. What do you do with sin? There's two things. One is you remember Christ. Two is you discipline it. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven of the new lump. So that uh, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Please hear this. Four, here's the reason. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This Passover language, again, hearkening back to the Exodus. When God came miraculously and delivered his people from slavery. What Paul is saying here is that in Christ, a new and far greater exodus has taken place. And it's not just exodus from physical slavery. It's an exodus from sin. It's a total freeing from the power, right? From the eternal consequences of sin. It's not by the blood of an animal, it's by the blood of the Son of God. And because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, you really are unleavened. This is what the gospel has done for those who trust Christ. Leavening, again, is in relation to sin. In Christ, you are unsinned. (laughs) In Christ, because of his blood on the cross, all of your sin has been cleansed. What they would do in these homes with this piece of leaven that was bacteria was invading in order to, uh, you know, what do you call it? Uh, Make it rise. What's that word called? Um, Come on. You don't know what the word I'm looking for? Why don't you know what word I'm looking for? Whatever. Uh, If they would let it sit too long, it would cause a health concern. So every once in a while, the woman would remove all leaven from her home. Get rid of it all. In Christ, that's what's happened to you. All your sin has been removed. Right? When God sent his son to the cross, he put all of your sin upon his son. And Christ died, nailing the record of your sin with him to the cross, and it is gone. That's one thing that you do with your sin. You count it as gone. You're forgiven. You're washed. You're sanctified. You have been counted absolutely righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And part of your dealing with ongoing sin is believing that. One way that you fight sin is to, bl- is to fight to believe that Christ has made an end of it. This is one thing that you and I as believers fail at all the time. We do not believe that Christ has conquered the power of sin in our lives. And, and we, we do this little subtle thing 
where we say, I can't help it. I can't help it. I can't help my lying. It's just, it's just the way I am. But your kids do that. Your spouse does that. People at your workplace do that. And that for a Christian is absolute heresy. The Son of God has died in your place and risen from the dead and reigns on high. Do you seriously think you have to keep doing it? Has he or has he not freed you from sin? The power of sin is broken in our lives. Now, this is one of the paradoxes of Christianity. That is true. You have been freed from the power of sin. You're not a slave to it anymore. And you will still sin. The victory has been won, and it will be fully consummated when Christ comes. And until that day, you and I are still going to wrestle with temptation and sin. And one of the ways that you need to fight sin is to believe the gospel. Another way that you have to do it is to submit to discipline, which is what Paul is calling for in these verses. I'm going a little long here. Um, we got to get to this. I'll do it quickly here and we'll hit it more next week. All right. They are being uh, chastised by Paul because they have not dealt with the sin of this man in the church. And as I said in the time of confession, Paul intends discipline here in two realms. In the realm of the corporate church and in your own private life. So he's talking here about church discipline. And his language here is hard. Cleanse out the old leaven. What is he talking about there? What is he talking about there? He's talking about removing that man from the church. Cleanse him out. And you know, that's loving. And you and I are firmly convinced that that is harsh and mean and stone age and as unloving as we could ever be to another human being. And like the church in Corinth, we would like to boast that we've moved on from those Stone Age ways. We're more enlightened. We don't remove sinners anymore. We graciously bear with them. We don't remove sinners anymore. Maybe we even celebrate. We don't call it sin anymore. And yet the inspired apostle writes that the way they should have dealt with this man is to cleanse him out like a woman does yeast from her home. Take out the trash. That's the language here. Isn't that hard? Is that not hard? 
This is, this is biblical Christianity 101 on how to deal with sin. Remove them. Look what he says later on. We'll get into this next week. Um, Paul says, I, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He doesn't mean about sexually immoral outside the church. He's talking about sexually immoral inside the church. Look, look at verse 11. I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This is someone who confesses Christ but is an ongoing sin of sexual morality or greed or idolatry or revel or drunkard or something. Don't even eat with such a one. Don't even eat with such a one. Now the motives for this hard discipline are for the glory of God. Paul wants the fame of Christ to remain pure and great. It's for the protection of the church. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It's protection. You as a father would not let something that's going to harm your children into your home. Would you? There's a reason you have a door on your house. Same thing in the church. Church fathers are supposed to protect the church by removing that from which in the family could harm the rest of the family. Here's the thing, and you've got to get this through your head, because we need to do this. You've got to get this through your head. Discipline for sin is absolutely inevitable. Someone is always going to suffer consequences for sin. It's inevitable. If you don't deal in your family with a kid who's throwing a tantrum and does it all the time, somebody's suffering, right? You're either going to make that little bugger who's throwing a fit suffer, or everybody suffers. Somebody is disciplined. You understand? You can't avoid it. Somebody's going to get it. It's either the person who is causing the sin or everybody. If you don't deal with this man, everybody's going to suffer. You got it? Everybody's going to get disciplined. Elders do not have a choice to escape from having to discipline people. They're either going to actively discipline the person in sin or passively watch everybody else get hit. You got it? You can't avoid it. You see it in spades in our society, right? If you're a teacher in a classroom and you don't deal with the person causing the problem, everybody suffers. This is Paul's point here. You, they are making a willful choice to cause trouble for everybody else in the church because they won't cause trouble for this one man. It's inescapable. This is what men who fear what people think more than they fear God do. They always cause trouble for everybody else, and everybody else looks around and says, what's happening here? And, the, and these passive men never get called on the carpet because they're nice. They've done the nice thing. You know what happens in these churches? The godly people leave. Always. It might be five years down the road. You might have some who cling and hang on. But the godly people, if sin goes unpunished for a long time, they just end up leaving. They take the discipline. They take the discipline of having to move from this church to another church and establish a relationship and do that all over again. That is so wicked to do to people, isn't it? All right, I was going to get into how to do this, but I'm over. And so we'll hit it up next week. So you got to come back next week. You don't have a choice.
I'm long-winded today. But this is really important stuff. This is why the church in America is so pathetic. Because we will not deal with this. Let's pray. We'll celebrate communion. And then you can go. Let's pray. Father, help us here. Uh, We have not had the faith to follow your word here. This is very hard work. And we need your grace. Help us to do it for the right reasons, for your glory, for the protection of the church, and for the restoration of those in sin, because we love them, because we fear you. And God, help us to do it right, I mean, with grace, with patience, but with firmness and hardness. And so God, teach us to do this well. Uh, We want it, and we want to do it well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand for the charge and benediction? Brothers and sisters, I would charge you to ask God in prayer for the faith to do what we're talking about here today. That's what it is. It just takes trust in God enough to do it. So ask Him to faith. Second, please sign up to volunteer at the new building. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you all and give you His peace purchased through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord.